MSW Media. So to be clear, Mr. Trump has no financial relationships with any Russian oligarchs. That, that's what he said. I, I, that's what I said. That's obviously what the, our position is. I'm not aware of uh, any of those activities. I have been called a surrogate at a time or two in that campaign, and I didn't have not have communications with the Russians. What do I have to get involved with Putin for? I have nothing to do with Putin. I've never spoken to him. I don't know anything about him other than he will respect me. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. So, it is political. You're a communist. No, Mr. Green. Communism is just a red herring. Like all members of the oldest profession, I'm a capitalist. Hello, and welcome to Episode 6 of the MSW Book Club. Uh, we are reading Hatchet Man, How Bill Barr Broke the Prosecutor's Code and Corrupted the Justice Department by former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig. I'm your host, Allison Gill, but you can call me AG if you want. Today, we are finishing the book. We're covering pages 195 through 255, but this is not the last episode. We will have one more episode next week, next Sunday, with Ellie Honig, who will be answering your questions. The chapters we're covering today include the 2020 election, Endgame, Culture Warrior, The Road Back, and Humility. And I want to apologize in advance. I have lost my voice, got it back a little bit, but it's it's rough. And so I do apologize, uh, but I want to get this episode out to you um, because you count on us to do these things weekly. And so I'm here for you. Uh, I will be saying, though, that we will be only offering after next week's episode, the MSW Book Club to patrons. So if you want to become a patron, it's just three bucks a month. You get all these book club episodes, future and past, the entire archive. Um, you'll also get access to our closed social media groups. They're, they're private social media groups, and we have a couple of Discord channels we hang out on. Uh, plus, you get to be part of the coolest community ever. And you get ad-free episodes of The Daily Beans the night before they come out to the public. And you get ad-free episodes of Muller She Wrote, and you get them early as well. So it's just three bucks a month. Totes, totes worth it. It's the best deal on the market in podcasting. So check that out. And if you have a question for Ellie for next week's episode, you can drop it into the into the form. We posted a link on our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash Muller She Wrote. All right. We ended last week with a mini chapter called Own It, Fix It which was another great anecdote from Ellie with the moral that in government and in life, when you make a mistake, you own it and you fix it. Uh, we are in the middle of a harrowing example of that this week as President Biden has pulled our remaining troops out of Afghanistan per Trump's agreement with the Taliban. But as that was happening, the Afghan army, which had pledged to Biden just months ago and the White House that they would stay and fight, they surrendered. They laid down their arms and fled the country throwing Afghanistan into chaos. And despite two decades of presidents unwilling to address the tenuous situation in Afghanistan, and despite the Trump administration signing an agreement in Doha, Qatar, promising the Taliban the release of 5,000 of their fighters, including their now de facto president, and lifting all sanctions on them, and a complete drawdown by May 1st, 2021, Biden stood up and took responsibility. He says the buck stops with him. And he's vowed to fix the situation on the ground, which is happening now, with a temporary surge to ensure the safe withdrawal of remaining Americans and promise to our Afghan allies of safety and refugee status, 
either in the United States or in neighboring safe countries. And we're just learning today as well that, uh, well, I think we knew this actually before, but it's we're being reminded that uh, the Trump administration had pretty much shut down and bottlenecked the refugee SIV status program. And so that has caused a giant backlog. And it's been a, a major problem. But, but Biden has owned it and he's fixing it. Um, and hopefully the fixing it part will go smoothly. We'll see. In Hatchet Man, Ellie uses the own it, fix it mantra to describe how Barr shirked that responsibility, which led him to publicly embarrassing himself and, worse, the Department of Justice on the issue of voting rights and voting. Ellie opens the 2020 election chapter with Barr's interview with Wolf Blitzer uh, in September. Well, he, he refers to the interview with Wolf Blitzer in September 2020, in which he had a chance to come clean about a run-up of lies he told about mail-in voting. We know Trump started decrying vote by mail in spring of 2020 by tweeting out all kinds of garbage, insinuating that it was ripe for fraud and shouldn't be allowed. In June 2020, Barr told NPR's Steve Inskeep that mail-in ballots present so many occasions for fraud that cannot be policed. He said he thought it would be very bad and raised the possibility of counterfeiting ballots. When asked if he had evidence, he said, no, it's just obvious, <laughs> even though we have no record of that. <laughs> no evidence. It's just obvious. It isn't. Again, in July 2020, Barr, during congressional testimony, when asked for evidence, he said he didn't have any, but he has common sense. And Ellie then talks about the enormous ridiculousness of his statements and reminds us that in 2017, Trump formed an advisory commission on election integrity, which disbanded after finding nothing. But none of the cornucopia of facts showing voter fraud isn't a thing. <laughs> Barr kept pushing that narrative, despite. In fact, when he had the chance to come clean that September 2020 Wolf Blitzer interview, uh, in that interview, he actually told Wolf that the Department of Justice found 1,700 ballots in Texas that were fraudulent. He was asked if there were any indictments, and he said several. But as it turns out, there were no indictments. And there weren't 1,700 fraudulent ballots either. The former Texas state prosecutor explained that they looked at 1,700 ballots and found a problem with one. But by then, the damage is done, right? You can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. And the Department of Justice explained it away by saying Barr had, had been given bad information in a memo. Of course, we never saw that memo because it doesn't exist, and he lied. And then just weeks later, Barr's Justice Department tried again when U.S. Attorney for the Middle District of Pennsylvania said they were investigating discarded ballots that had been cast for Trump. First, Ellie reminds us you never talk about open investigations. Ellie explains it's Prosecution 101. Public disclosure of a pending investigation undermines the secrecy and efficacy of the investigation itself. But just six weeks prior to the general election, Department of Justice confirmed the bogus Pennsylvania investigation and again was wrong. They said they found nine ballots cast for Trump that had been discarded when it was actually seven. And the mistake was clerical, not sinister in nature. If you remember, some voters had mistakenly sent in ballots using envelopes designated for ballot requests, which renders the ballot invalid anyhow. So that incorrect announcement not only broke the rules by publicly discussing a pending investigation, but it also broke the rule that you don't announce election-related stuff within 60 days of an election. But to the election rule, Ellie reminds us that to get around that, Barr simply changed the rules. Two weeks after the Pennsylvania bullshit, Barr added a caveat to the 60-day rule saying, except in cases involving postal workers or military personnel. 
that's mail-in ballots. That's how the military votes abroad, and that's how you get your mail-in ballot is through the mail. Interesting. Days later, New Jersey federal prosecutors announced the indictment of a mail carrier that had discarded more than 1,800 pieces of mail, 99 ballots included. They didn't mention that they weren't complete ballots. They were blank ballots on their way to voters, not filled out ballots on the way back. Ellie says the conduct smacked less of fraud than of the Seinfeld episode in which Newman, a lazy postal carrier, dumps a crate of mail in a storage locker and then relaxes rather than making his appointed rounds. Nonetheless, fodder is fodder, and Trump immediately retweeted an article about it and the word rigged. Ellie goes on to tell us that it wasn't just Barr propping up Trump's lies about mail-in voting, but that he humiliated himself multiple times, playing dumb about easy things. Like when he refused to say on the record it would be illegal to vote twice. Remember that during that interview? He wouldn't say it. Wolf was trying to push him to say it, and he wouldn't say it's illegal to vote twice. Because Trump, the week before, had floated the idea. People should just fill out a mail-in ballot and then go and vote for me at the polls. Or there was a time barred during his congressional testimony when he refused to directly answer whether a president could cancel or delay an election. They can't, and it's clear and obvious that he wouldn't say it. So as the election was drawing closer, Trump was struggling in the polls, and the Durham investigation fizzled out. So what did Barr do? He appointed a U.S. attorney from Texas, John Bash, to look into the Flynn matter. And dun-dun-dun, the unmasking, which they really tried to make a thing, but wasn't a thing. Tucker Carlson also tried to make it a thing. After two Russians that were being monitored by the NSA mentioned his name, the NSA unmasked it to make sure it wasn't something they should be worried about. And we know Flynn's unmasking had nothing to do with the fact that he lied to the FBI and pled guilty about it twice, and it didn't have anything to do with the criminal predicate for opening the investigation into him. But Bash found no wrongdoing, and the Justice Department didn't even make an announcement about it. This is just another case of Trump simply announcing an investigation, right? But Barr did this for him. Barr was like, we're going to get to the bottom of that unmasking. Another case of Trump just announcing. You don't have to investigate. Just announce it. It was around the time Trump started breaking up with his bae, Barr, saying, saying Barr would either be a hero or a very sad situation. That was right around that time that the John Bash thing fizzled out, right? Trump even publicly called on Barr to indict Obama and Biden, saying they should be in handcuffs. Just an astounding abuse of power that no one really noticed because he does this shit every day. It's just a, it's a fire hose of abuses of power. Trump started getting desperate, saying, we've got to get the AG to act. He's got to act. The attorney general has to act, and he's got to act fast. This is major corruption, and it's got to be known about before the election. <laughs> he literally said that. Literally said the words, before the election. Then, in November, Barr made a change to the longstanding Department of Justice policy that they do not investigate elections until they are over and certified. He changed that. Barr said prosecutors can now investigate election fraud anytime, even when you're counting, even before the election is over. Part of that announced the election is corrupt and I'll take care of the rest shit we just learned about with Rosen after Barr left and Trump. Just just say just say it was corrupt. Right? Yeah, and now and now Barr is saying, Hey, you can investigate election fraud anytime. Nudge nudge. Wink wink. Trump and Giuliani used the mere announcement of this policy change as proof there was widespread election fraud. Trump and Rudy saying, look, look, Barr is saying that we can investigate election fraud as the election's happening. That means there's fraud. That's what this administration does. They take tiny, irrelevant crumbs of bullshit and try to blow it up into massive corruption. 
right? The Flynn unmasking, the Carter Page FISA, Hunter Biden's laptop, Hillary's emails, the Pennsylvania discarded ballots. The list goes on and on and on because they have nothing of substance. They can only take these tiny, the Kleinsmith thing, right? The FBI lawyer who changed an email in, a, in the Carter Page case, who was never prosecuted. The Carter Page was never prosecuted. But Kleinsmith pl- pled guilty. Now, once Barr made the announcement about being able to investigate election fraud during the election, the guy who wrote the policy that you can't do that, his name is, is Pilger, he resigned his position at Maine Justice. A couple days later, a group of 16 federal prosecutors assigned to monitor fraud in the election sent a letter to Barr saying they found none. And that pretty much ended it for Barr, right? On December 1st, he told the Associated Press there was no election fraud on a scale that would have changed the outcome of the election. That, of course, drew the ire of Trump and his supporters who accused him now of being part of the deep state. Ellie offers us three possible explanations for Barr's turnaround. Uh, First, Barr was... Awesome at twisting and spinning facts, but he wasn't a wizard. He couldn't conjure crimes and fraud out of thin air where there were none. He couldn't conjure voter fraud. Second, Barr knew Trump was going to lose and wanted to repair his legacy a bit instead of going down with the ship like so many others already had. Third, Ellie says maybe he just did the right thing, whether it was out of self-interest or guilt. As we know, Barr ended up resigning after kind of being fired-ish. The details are murky. <laughs> but he wrote an ass-kiss of a resignation letter and then left. He peaced out. And since the book came out, he's been on somewhat of a rehabilitation tour, and I'm going to talk with Ellie about this on the, on the next episode of the book club. But, you know, he did this interview with The Atlantic in June. It's a piece about how he was super abused by Trump and couldn't take it anymore, and please don't associate him with Trump anymore. He didn't find any voter fraud. They were trying to make him find voter fraud. It was all Trump's fault. He didn't do anything wrong. Well, he can kick rocks with that shit. Nobody's buying what he's selling. I'm not. Especially if what he's selling is that he didn't weaponize the Department of Justice on Trump's behalf. Now, the next chapter is called Culture Warrior. It starts on page 220. This chapter delves into why Barr is who he is, why he's the way he is. And Ellie explains the culture warrior aspect of Bill Barr. Basically, he wants to bring his Christo-fascist Gilead vision of America to life, right? He didn't need the money. He didn't need the job. He didn't just accept the job. He auditioned for it. He sought it out. So why? Ellie has two theories. First theory is for power. It's a lot of power. 110,000 employees at the Department of Justice. You're in charge of the FBI. I mean, it's massive. It's a lot of power. And Barr wanted power. The second theory is to amplify and implement his extreme views on executive power. Quote, In Trump, Barr had a president who shared his fundamental belief in virtually unfettered executive power. And Ellie gives loads of great examples of Barr's view on executive power in this chapter, so I encourage you to read it. He also details how Barr corrupted the Justice Department with his worldview of the evils of secularism and gives several examples of speeches at Notre Dame, for example, the Federalist Society, and writings of Barr saying things like, Quote, in fact, Judeo-Christian moral standards are the ultimate utilitarian rules for human conduct. Gross. And they lowered open, right? Ugh. That doctrine, 
he proselytized so many times, over and over. Ellie gives multiple examples. And all of that became clear in a lot of his statements and policies, especially in the stuff about the anarchist jurisdictions and the firing of tear gas on peaceful protesters at Lafayette Square, his desire to stamp out dissenting far-left extremist heathens, you know, these devil people. All of that rhetoric kind of comes out of this belief. His uh, wanting to sort of force his Judeo-Christian morals and values on society, all that language during the the George Floyd protests. And of course, it was evident in the Department of Justice's arguments to the Supreme Court about religious freedom. Trump doesn't fit that mold at all. But for Barr, he likely didn't admire Trump as a man, but just used him as a vessel to employ his anti-secular and executive power narratives, right? And that's what this whole culture warrior chapter is about. It's really good, really well written. And then the next chapter is called The Road Back. And Ellie lays out nine reforms to restore the reputation of the Department of Justice. Number one, explicitly reject Barr's stated view of complete presidential prosecutorial power. That a president has the full power to stop or start an investigation has to go, right? Number two, adopt specific rules limiting communication with the president and White House staff. Garland has done that in a memo, drawing a bright red line between the White House, between the executive and Department of Justice. Number three, restore integrity and ethics to uh, to the recusal process, right? Uh, that's important. <laughs> Number four, revise the special counsel regulations. Hello. Number five, revoke bad OLC decisions. Yes, and restore OLC independence. That's the Office of Legal Counsel. That, 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 that's where we got that memo that says you can't indict a sitting president. That needs to go. <laughs> Number six, protect and strengthen the inspector general. Yes, please. Number seven, clarify the prohibition of foreign election aid. Seems like a no-brainer. You can't take foreign election aid, anything of value. That would be good if they made it a policy. Number eight, reinforce the policy of restricting public commentary on pending investigations. And uh, number nine, formally adopt the pre-election blackout rule. It's been an unwritten rule that, you know, you can't announce investigations that are politically sensitive within 60 days of an election. They need to make it a rule. And the final chapter of the book is called Humility. It starts with an incredible, incredible story in the first pages. I'm going to leave for you to read uh, for yourself. It's just amazing. Uh, and then Ellie says that the Department of Justice must begin its recovery with humility. It, and, he, and he explains it's tough for an attorney general, right, with all that power and no checks, you know, no, no checks of like a, a line prosecutor where, where you have judges checking you and your, and your trial partners checking you and your bosses and supervisors checking you or other regular human beings giving you constructive feedback. It doesn't happen at those super high levels. So it's hard for an AG to remain humble. But he says future attorneys general simply must do better. And that is a wrap. As I said, I'll be here next week with the author, Ellie Honig, to answer your questions. There's a link on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash MullerSheWrote, where you can submit your questions for Ellie, if you have any. Uh, our next book club series, as I said, will only be available for patrons. So if you've been putting it off, now is a great time to join. For as little as 3 bucks a month, you get access to the book club episodes ad-free versions of both The Daily Beans and Muller She Wrote, access to private social media groups and Discord groups, my newsletter. I forgot to tell you about my newsletter. It's got all my personal research notes and article citations that I use for the news every day. And you get membership in the coolest group of the most amazing people on the planet. Incredible group. 
a wonderful support. Amazing network. Three bucks a month. Patreon.com slash MullerSheWrote. Again, join us next week for the final episode of the MSW Book Club with the author himself answering your questions. Until then, please take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of the planet, and take care of your mental health. I've been Allison Gill, and this is the Muller She Wrote Book Club. The MSW Book Club is executive produced by Allison Gill in partnership with MSW Media and written by Allison Gill and Dana Goldberg. Sound design and engineering by Molly Hockey. Jesse Egan is our copywriter, and our art and web designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios. The MSW Book Club is a proud member of MSW Media, a group of creator-owned podcasts focused on news, justice, and politics. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. <laughs>